And uh, this is a little bit of a longer psalm. We're going to go ahead and take time to read it this morning, uh, 20 verses to it. Um, it's broken down into uh, three main sections in the first two-thirds of it. And then the last six verses kind of go back in two verse sets and kind of reiterate the uh, sections above and kind of give a summary of that. And so um, we'll explain how that all works here in just a few moments. But let's go ahead and read through Psalm 9. The psalmist says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual uh, end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, that thou liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit they made, uh, that they made. In the net uh, which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell in all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Well, what a great psalm it is. And uh, oftentimes, uh, the psalms seem to build upon the one before it and kind of complement the ones after it. And um, we know that the order of our psalms are uh, so ancient that there's really not an origin that we can point to and say this is where somebody organized the psalms in the order that they're in. Um, there are a lot of uh, folks that uh, believe very strongly that the Holy Spirit um, worked in the compiling of these psalms to put them in the order that they needed to be in for us. And just to give you a for instance, so Psalm 8, which we studied last week, seems to build uh, off of the truth of Psalm 7. And when we get to Psalm 9, it almost seems like it picks up and continues the thought, if you will, uh, of Psalm 8. Uh, it's a psalm that is written, most people uh, are pretty certain that it is a psalm that David wrote uh, dealing with the subject of his conquering of Goliath and uh, how Goliath was uh, conquered uh, in the might of the Lord Jesus and how David went to him uh, in the might of God and not with his own strength. 
But uh, the underlying theme is the idea that uh, the triumphant, the rejoicing of the triumphant victory uh, of the King of Kings over uh, the evil one. And we kind of see that as a theme throughout the psalm. Uh, it's a very triumphal hymn, a uh, very exalting hymn. And, of course, a lot of uh, the psalms are uh, psalms that bring praise to the Lord. Um, there are basically uh, three divisions here, and I want to give those to you real quick. Uh, verses 1 to 6 are a song of jubilant thanksgiving. And so you'll hear a lot of the, uh, the rejoicing of the heart of David. Uh, the second section, or the second verses of it, if you will, uh, stanza of it, would be verse 7 through 12. And in verses 7 to 12, we find a, uh, a declaration of faith that David makes regarding uh, God's future workings. And so a declaration of faith uh, is found in the second section. And then in verses 13 and 14, we find a closing prayer. Now, I say a closing prayer, even though it's not the end of the chapter, because uh, there are six verses basically left here. We have verse 15 and 16, which seems to go back and summarize the first stanza, if you will, the verses 1 to 6. And so, again, we see a song for past judgment uh, that's given in verse six, 15 and 16, just kind of a concise, uh, more like a summary, if you will, of the first section of the psalm. And then verse 17 and 18, once again, a declaration of trust in future judgments. And again, just a two-verse summary of that middle section of the psalm. And then verse 19 and 20 is once again a closing prayer of the psalmist. Um, so, so mainly three sections with three small summaries for each of the sections, if that makes sense to you. Hopefully that will help kind of put the psalm together. It's a little more difficult than most of our psalms as far as how to break it down uh, by way of section. But uh, I want us to look at a couple of things here as we get to verse number one. There are several things that are given to us, I think, that are helpful uh, to understand how our praise to the Lord ought to be. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice that the psalmist um, expresses who the object of his praise is. In verse number 1, he says, I will praise thee, O Lord. And so uh, I think uh, certainly the object of our praise for those that are Christians, uh, we understand that the praise that we have should always be to the Lord. There is no one else that deserves the praise other than him. And so the, the object of our praise should be, of course, the Lord Jesus. But then I want you to notice that he expresses the nature of our praise. This is how our praise should be. And he says this, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. Uh, somebody said this one time, a half a heart is no heart at all. And uh, we always uh, will talk with people when it comes to even things such as a, just a general work ethic and the in our lives, we'll say, well, don't be half-hearted about it. Uh, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, kind of an idea. <clears throat> and the psalmist talks about the fact that our praise ought to be something that <clears throat> is with our whole heart. It so consumes us that it, it, is a, it is an overflowing of what is inside of our hearts. We cannot contain it within us. Um, reminded of Jeremiah in his book of Lamentations, he got so frustrated with the condition of things that he uh, said, I will no more speak in his name. He said, I'm done. I'm not going to do it anymore. But he said it was shut up in me like a fire, and he couldn't, he couldn't restrain. It just had to come out. And can I tell you this, that when it comes to the praise that we give to the Lord, it ought to be something that is done with our whole heart. It ought to just overflow. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get further down in the psalm. Uh, but, but I will say this, that the 
the fervency, the nature of our praise will always hinge on our time that is spent meditating and thinking on the things of the Lord. The more we think on Him, the more we dwell on Him, the more we are conscious of Him throughout our day, the higher our praise will be, the greater our praise will be. And the more we are encumbered by the things of the world and we don't put our thoughts towards Him, the less our praise will be. And so when it talks about the fact that our whole heart is to be in this praise, uh, the psalmist is speaking here that, well, we need to be walking with Him in such a way that it's just the natural thing. It just overwhelms. It overflows. And uh, so he talks about uh, praising the Lord with his whole heart and the nature of the praise. And then he speaks about the fact of the action of our praise. And this, I think, is very important to note in verse number 1. He says, I will show forth, and I'm going to stop right there for a moment, because it's one thing for us to have a heart of gratitude, um, to have that, that heart of, boy, I just God is so good to me. But if we never express it, if we never let others know about it, is it really praise? Um, sometimes we take prayer requests and um, we'll say, I've got an unspoken prayer request. I understand there are some things that are of a private nature and personal nature that you still want people to pray for, but you can't tell them the details of it. And I understand that. And I was in college one time, and um, uh, we were having a, a praise time or a time where people were giving thanks to the Lord and sharing testimonies and things that God had done good for them. And one fellow raised his hand and said, I have an unspoken praise. And I thought, That's, you can't have an unspoken praise. Uh, you have to speak of the fact that God has done something great for you. And, um, and, and a, a praise that's not spoken, it's not acted upon, is something that uh, is no praise at all, really. And so it's not enough for us to just simply have a heart of gratitude. It ought to move us to some action. Uh, it ought to be so that, boy, about every time you get in conversation, you can't help but talk about the Lord somehow. Uh, it just seems to flow out of you. And so this is what the psalmist is getting at. He says, I will so forth. And then he says this. Uh, he's got a little three-letter word here. All, all, thy marvelous works. All thy mar- marvelous works. Uh, I was reading some commentaries and some men that uh, wrote things about this particular psalm to get uh, some thoughts on it and to write some notes for some things here for us for Sunday school. And one of them made this statement, Remembrance of one mercy brings to mind a multitude of others. And when we think on the things of the Lord and His goodness to us, when we think of one, it oftentimes brings to mind of many, many others of His faithfulness to us, His mercy to us, His workings in our lives. I was uh, years ago, a number of years ago, I was listening to a fellow that was teaching on youth ministry, and one of the things he taught his young people was to keep what he called a book of remembrance. It was a journal, and he he had each of his teenagers keep a journal, and daily they were to take a few moments before they went to bed each night and write down some of the things that God had done that only He could have done in their life that day. And he said, you ought to write them down because you'll forget them. And he says, when you get in those times where it seems like the burdens are too great and and it's overwhelming, go and get that out and read through how God did so many wonderful things in your past and then pray and say, Lord, you've done it in the past. You'll do it in the future. And oftentimes remembering even just one of God's blessings in our life will bring to mind many, many others. And uh, so we find here now the subject 
of our praise, and that is His marvelous works. His marvelous works. What are some of His marvelous works? Well, I think certainly we could say without uh, any uh, argument on it that our salvation is a marvelous work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I mean, that's you think about it, to take a fallen man, a sinful man who is uh, at enmity with God in his spirit, and to reconcile him and bring him into fellowship with God and to make him as though he had never sinned and put righteousness on him, uh, that is a marvelous work of the Lord Jesus. Salvation is a marvelous work. Preservation, the fact that I'm eternally secure, uh, I don't have to worry about losing my salvation, is a marvelous work of the Lord Jesus. His forgiveness in the times that we fail Him after we have sinned, uh, that helped uh, to deal with our relationship with Him. That forgiveness that He's willing to forgive, how many times? The answer is every time. The Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, that doesn't give us license to sin. I've heard some people take that and run with it and say, I'm just going to live how I want to because God will just forgive me. No, no, it's because of His willingness to forgive us all the time that we don't have a desire to do things that would cause Him to have to forgive us. And that's a marvelous work, a marvelous work. His sanctification, His cleaning up of our lives, His causing us to become more like Him day by day is a marvelous work. His deliverance from temptation and sin. How often uh, I think that we'll be able to look back in history uh, in our lives when we get to heaven. I think we'll see some of the times that God kept us from some things. And even in the Lord's Prayer, as He uh, taught His disciples to pray, it talks about the fact to deliver them from evil and to deliver them from uh, temptation and to deliver them from those that uh, would cause them to want to do uh, what's wrong. And uh, the fact that God brings deliverance to us and we're no longer under the bondage of sin. He's made a way of escape for every one of us. That is a marvelous work. His loving kindness, His long-suffering. We could go on and on and on and on. His mercy, His grace. The fact that He is my refuge and ever-present help. He's my buckler and He's my strength. He's my fortress. He's my high time. You go on and on and on of all the things that God is doing for us. And we'd have to say that's a marvelous work. And you can't hardly think of one without thinking of all the others. They just seem to come to mind. And the psalmist said, I'm going to praise you for these things. I'm going to praise you with my whole heart. And I'm going to show forth these things. I want to make sure people know about it. I'm going to proclaim it. Verse number 2, he says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. Gladness and joy is always... Um, the fruit, if you will, of a spirit of praise. Uh, gladness and joy. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. Have you ever noticed as you read things in Scripture about the, 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 the passages that give us the information of people who worship false idols? Uh, I remember reading of the, the, the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that story? And they get up on the altar and they're, they're crying aloud. And uh, the Bible says that they're actually cutting themselves and blood is gushing from them. And it's a very oppressive thing. I'm so thankful that when it comes to worshiping our God, that it's not an oppressive thing. I even think through to some of the false religions and, and, uh, and false teaching that's out here today that leads people down a wrong way. There's so much fear involved in it, so much of a twisting of the arm to get them to, they have to do it or they lose heaven. 
uh, kind of a mentality. I'm so thankful that ours is of a free will and a heart that can just have a heart of rejoicing and a heart of joy and, and that that is the kind of praise that God has for us. And the psalmist expresses this in verse 2. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. Somebody said this one time. They said that daily rejoicing is an ornament of grace to a Christian's character. Daily rejoicing is an ornament of grace to a Christian's character. Think about this for a moment. I was just talking with uh, some folks recently about this passage. But uh, the Bible says that uh, King Saul, if you'll remember, had an evil spirit on him. You remember that? And, and even his servant came to him and said, there's an evil spirit. And we think you ought to call David... And isn't it interesting that the soothing song of the harp of David drove the evil spirit away? Uh, I don't know if you ever had one of those days. Some, some women call it a bad hair day maybe, or sometimes we just say it's been one of those days at the end of the day. You know what will drive some of those thoughts and spirits away from us? Start taking a few minutes to thank God for the things that He's done in your life. It will drive the spirit far from you. Oh, what a wonderful joy it is to be able to give praise to the Lord. Verse number 3, he says this, When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. And I will say this, God's presence is always sufficient to defeat whatever foe is in our life. His presence will always be sufficient uh, to drive out the, uh, the evil, the foe, the enemy. And uh, notice what he says here in verse number uh, 3. He says, They shall fall... And per- I'm sorry, uh, when mine enemies are, notice this phrase, are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. And I was reading one fellow this week, and he made this statement. He said, even flight cannot save them. The enemies of God are certainly going to be judged. He's going to, they're going to be judged righteously, and they will not be able to flee. They will not be able to escape. And uh, it's good to know that there are uh, the times that God stands and defends us against his enemies. And verse number 4, he says, For thou hast maintained my right and my cause, thou sattest in the throne judging right. And I wrote this down about this particular verse. The judge of heaven knows my heart, and I do not need to fear the judgment of men. The only person I need to be careful of and make sure that when I am judged... I am found to be the way that I should be is God. I need to be pleasing to Him. I don't need to worry about men's judgments. I need to worry about what God's judgment is. And by the way, there's people that will say that. Well, I don't have to worry about what men think. And they mean by that, I can go out here and live however I want. And, and their, their comment is, God knows my heart. Well, that's true. If anything, that ought to drive us to live a more holy life. A more righteous life than the judgment of men. Because men, I'll be real frank with you, are tainted by a sinful nature. And their judgment is flawed. Their judgment is error. And if we end up worrying and trying to live our lives by the judgment of men, it may lead to worldly living. But when we consider the fact that God sits as the judge of my heart, it ought to, it ought to motivate, it ought to stir, it ought to cause us to say, I need to be holy because God knows things that even men don't know about me. 
God knows my actions even more than men do. God knows my heart even more than men do. God knows my thoughts even more than men do. And if anything, it ought cause me to live even more holy and more righteous. And he says this in verse number 4. He says, Thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. The psalmist was saying, You know me. and Your judgment is all that is important to me. Verse number 5, he says, Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. And I find this interesting that throughout Scripture, uh, God most almost every time uh, gives the, the, the enemy, the wicked ones, an opportunity to repent. He rebukes them. <coughs> and then he comes without mercy. If they stay that way, and by the way, we understand that in the Revelation, uh, it is taught that He will do that in the end time. That we're living in a period where God is giving opportunity for men to come back to Him. I, I, I am appalled at what I'm seeing in our society, even in the last few weeks. Things I would have never thought our country would have ever stood for and rioted against. Ah. Uh, in my lifetime, I'm watching happen. Men are continuing to spiral down. And there was a book a number of years ago, a good book that was written called um, uh, uh, "I'm Trying to uh, Spiraling, Spiraling Toward Gomorrah." I think is the name of it. If I can remember that, that's yeah, "Spiraling Toward Gomorrah." I believe is the name of it. And uh, I apologize; it left my mind just as soon as I thought of it. Uh, but a great, great um, uh, concept that is in the theme of that book is the idea. That, that men is men are continually getting more and more evil, and the Bible talks about that that the world's going to wax worse and worse and uh, and that there's going to even be a, a, an acceleration of that and I think those of you that have lived long enough to see this in, in this room would have to be in agreement that we have watched not only the decline of the morality of man but we've watched the acceleration of that decline in our lifetime and we're looking at it where it's 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 moving now in a period of a month or two what used to take years for our world to move in, a, in an area of morality. Uh, rushing toward Gomorrah. That's the name of the book. There we go. Rushing toward Gomorrah. I got it right there. Uh, and the idea is, and the, the, the concept of this fellow is, that every generation will center its morals at the extreme deviancy of the generation before. In other words, I have a, I have a center of my morality and then there are things that are acceptable, and then there's a point where it becomes deviant, and I won't cross that line, morality-wise. And his, his premise is this, that every generation will center their morals at the extreme of the generation before them. And that they will now take that center, and they will go to a further extreme before it becomes deviant to them. And the idea of rushing toward Gomorrah and spiraling down of the morality of man, uh, we're living in that day. We're witnessing those days. We're watching this acceleration take over. And uh, here we find that uh, God gives opportunity for people to repent. He rebukes them. But then it notice he says in verse 5, Thou hast destroyed the wicked. And when he brings that judgment, that judgment, he is just to do so. By the time God brings this kind of judgment on the wicked, there is no person, not even the wicked himself, that can say, God didn't give me a chance. He is just in His judgment. And when His judgment comes, I want you to notice what it says here. Thou hast 
put out their name forever and ever. He's going to judge so completely that they are not only going to be destroyed, they're even going to be forgotten. Their name is going to be put out. And the Bible tells us that there's coming a time where the wrath of God will be poured out on the sin of man. He must. He's a just God. And, and, and I know when we teach this type of thing, people say, well, God's just a mean and a big of God. No, no. God is a God of love and grace. That's why He's given opportunity right now for men to come to Him and to get those things right. He's given them a chance. He, didn't, he wasn't the one that condemned man. Man condemned himself by going into sin. God's just following His own moral law and being a just God. And because He loves man so much, He's given them an opportunity and a means of escaping this. And if man chooses not to take the thing that God has given to them, His grace, this wonderful gospel message of putting their faith in Him, if man chooses not to do that, then they're responsible for their own blood, not him. If men go to hell, they do it trampling through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ has done everything to keep them from it. He's not going to force it on them. It's odd that the wickedness of men, it's really appalling and difficult to understand that men feel like they can overcome God. And I would say this, that mindset that somehow men can advance above God or, or make God uh, to have no effect in their lives, I believe comes from many times, sadly to say, a lot of pulpits in our churches here in America where we have men that will stand up today and they will teach people, you are a God. And they will actually say those words. They'll say, well, you, you, you are God and, and, and you have authority and you have rights and God cannot. And they'll say this, God cannot do anything unless you give Him permission and authority. And what they're doing is they're deifying man and they are humanizing God. And may God deliver us from such teaching in our country. May we understand that God is God. He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords and He can do as He wills. And anything that God allows us to have a part in His work is only because of His grace. As we get to verse number 6, he says, O thou enemy, the psalmist begins to, to address the enemy directly. He says, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them, exalting uh, over this fallen uh, enemy. David starts talking about the boast that is taken from him. Uh, he says, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And you can remember how David or how Goliath came out and was boastful. He was challenging the men of Israel to come out and fight him. At the end of the day, the boast was taken from the lips of Goliath. By the way, as we look at the parallels that are drawn between the battle of David and Goliath and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was able to defeat the foe of death and hell, the boast is taken out of that. And one writer wrote it this way. He said, this is why the Lord came out of the grave saying, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Because he took the, he took the braggadocious spirit from those. He took their boasting away. The spoiler is spoiled 
The one who had made captive is now led captive himself. And the psalmist is rejoicing and exalting the Lord for this. In verse number 7, we begin a new section here. As he begins to declare his faith for the things that God will do in the future because of what he's done in the past, he says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment and rest assured, even though God is dwelling now and being long-suffering now, the judgment of God is a sure thing and it will come. In light of the past, the future is of no doubt. Um, God is on the throne. And the same God that was at the beginning of creation, the same God that was doing uh, the miraculous works that were needed to deliver Israel through the Old Testament, the miraculous work of salvation at Calvary, is the same God that's on the throne today. And His enduring uh, existence, His righteous judgments, according to verse number 7, are sure and they are the firm foundation of our joy. They are the things that we rejoice in when the psalmist spoke of in verse uh, number um, 2, this rejoicing and this gladness. These are the very foundations of what he's rejoicing in. That the Lord shall endure forever and that He hath prepared His throne for judgment. He is a righteous judge. There's not going to be one person that ever stands before God that God is going to be able to be accused of not being prepared in judging them or that He was unfair. God has certainly prepared His throne for judgment. He's given them opportunity to repent. In verse 8, it says, And He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Unlike the courts of men, God's court is always a court of righteousness and uprightness. It is always fair. There is no partiality, and there is no respect of persons when it comes to God's judgment. I want us to keep that thought in mind. I think it doesn't take but just a cursory glance at the news cycles that we are going through in this day and age to realize that in men's courts there is a lot of partiality. There is certainly a lot of prejudice in the courts. Not so with the courts of heaven. In the courts of heaven there is impartiality. There is no respecter of persons. And there's two things that I think are very critical about knowing that. It ought to be a warning for us when we are tempted to sin. That God is not partial. And it ought to be a comfort to us when we are splandered or oppressed for doing right. God will be just. He will always be just. He'll be just to judge and to chasten us in our sin. And He will be just to stand in our defense when we are wrongly accused for doing right. Very important that we understand that God's judgment is not like the courts in the United States of America. God's judgment is impartial and without respect of persons. Verse number 9, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And this same righteous judge... That gives no mercy during the day, <coughs> excuse me, during the day of judgment, is also the same judge that is a defender of those that are right. He's a defender of those that are right. And then verse number ten, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. 
Uh, we're going to probably have to knock off here, and I'm going to go ahead and give this verse, and then we'll pick up there next week and finish the psalm. But in verse 10, I do want to mention this. Uh, he says this, And they that know thy name. So there's an, there's an antithesis to that, and that is there are those that don't know his name. All right? They, they're not knowledgeable of God or the things of God. But they that know thy name, it gives the idea of, of not just knowing the word of the name of God, but having some familiarity with at least the attributes of who God is as well. And so it says, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Well, why will we do that? Because we know that God is who he says he is. We know some of the attributes of God. We know uh, some of what he is. And this knowledge of God will lead to faith uh, that brings grace into our lives and allows us to be saved. And he says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them, notice this, that what? That seek thee. I wrote this down. Ignorance of God is the worst ignorance that there can be. I was listening um, last night. I was listening last night to an interview that was taking place. And a young lady uh, being interviewed said this. Well, I'm not a religious person. And then she goes on to give her opinion of a matter that she had been questioned on. My heart broke. And I thought, here's a young lady that thinks that she has the world by the tail. And is looked up to as somebody that uh, people seek her opinions on things. And she has no idea of the things of the Lord. And the truth is, that's the worst kind of ignorance there is in the world. The reason that that's the worst kind of ignorance there is in the world is because it does not allow that individual to have any fellowship with God at all. None. Those that know the grace of God, those that have tasted of the grace of God, those that know His name, those that seek Him, notice the Bible says this, that the Lord has not forsaken them that seek Him. The faithfulness of God to those that are His children, those that love Him, those that fellowship with Him, those that walk with Him. There are a lot of people today that in their own eyes, in their own minds, and maybe because society has built them up so, feel like they're well-known and influential. They feel like they're men of renown or women of renown, that their opinions make some kind of major difference in the overall scheme of the way society thinks. And the truth is their ignorance is some of the worst ignorance in the world simply because they don't know God. Their wisdom is tainted with the sinful nature that they have and there's no wisdom at all. And the Bible says that the worst part of that is that God does not forsake them that seek Him, that know His name. The idea being that God is not there for those. God does not stand in their defense. God does not come to their aid for those who do not know Him. And our hearts ought to break when we understand a truth like that. And it ought to cause us to pray for and to worry about and to, to do all that we can to try to reach others with the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because of understanding what the result of them not knowing God is going to be. God is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. And the judgment of God will come on them.
We'll pick up there next week. Let's go ahead and stand together. Father, we pray that you'll bless the teaching of your word. May it be a help to us. May it motivate us. May we meditate and think upon it. May it motivate us to be more diligent 